Merry Christmas. You say, Greg, why in the world would you show a video like that in church, especially on Christmas season as we're just kicking it off? And Well, one reason is I wanted your, to get your attention. Did I get your attention? Hey, this guy, his name is Richard Dawkins. He's written a famous book called The God Delusion. He's an atheist. He is a scientist. And he goes around the world promoting that there is no God and that fact to, to believe in God, you must be delusional, irrational. It makes no sense to believe in God. And religions are ridiculous, wrong, and even evil. And, and this is his story. This is his message that he is promoting around the world. And, now, and he's creating quite a stir. And some, many people, you could say, are, are going this way. But a lot of people aren't going the whole way and becoming atheists and denying that there's any higher power. But they, they kind of just become maybe a little more mystical, a little more uh, agnostic. Not atheism that says there is no God, but agnostic says, well, who knows? Who knows for sure? And, and, and so many people today, they, they really have their doubts about God and exactly can you know how much about God and, and, and especially church. More and more people are feeling that church is irrelevant. Why go to church? I mean, I can believe in some higher power and, you know, try to be a good person. What, what do I need church for? Have you heard of the rise of the nuns? Anybody hear of the rise of the nuns? Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. Rise of the Nuns. Uh, you could Google it. It's out there. But uh, the, the nuns are uh, the fastest growing category in our population here in the United States today. So what that means is when, when uh, they fill out these forms and, you know, these surveys, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? You know, are you, are you Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever, 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 whatever? And down at the bottom it says none of the above. They check that nun box. The fastest growing group of, of people in the country today are the nuns. It used to be like 5% were none of the above. Now it's almost 23% are none of the above. And, and it just uh, these people of the, the nuns, it actually, another statistic for you, 72% of the nuns when it comes to their view of Scripture, of the Bible, they, they don't just don't believe it. They say it's not the Word of God. They question its origin, its relevance, its authority. And so gone are the days when you and I could quote chapter and verse and say this is what God says. People are like, I don't believe that. And many of them are becoming hostile to the Scriptures and to what you and I would call the God of the Bible, uh, even as Richard Dawkins here. You know, he's a megalomaniac. He's, he's a bully. And so more and more people are thinking, you know, hey, if you're smart and you're really modern and you're moral, uh, you, you just don't believe these stories anymore. Now, you know a lot of this already, don't you? You may not know some of the statistics, statistics but you, you feel the pressure from the culture all around us. You realize this, don't you? We are in a post-Christendom. A post-Christian society. It's called post-Christendom. You know, Christendom is when, it's a term that scholars use, sociologists, historians use. They, they use the term Christendom to, to define that time when our culture 
you know, America was was basically under the umbrella of the Christian faith. And most everybody, uh, you know, there was a certain peer pressure even to kind of look like a Christian or act like a Christian, even if you didn't really buy into it. And so many people actually went to church, not because they really believed it, because it was the socially accepted thing to do. There was peer pressure. For example, did you know that it wasn't that long ago in our American history, if you went into a bank to uh, take out a loan, they would give you a form, and, and on the form would be what church you attended and the name of your pastor. Can you imagine that today? And you say, well, Greg, what in the world does that have to do with getting a loan? Well, why would they care if I go to church or not or what church I go to? Well, because in Christendom, in that kind of mentality, the, the thought process was, why would I give a loan to a person who doesn't even go to church? They're probably not moral. They're probably not honest or, or hardworking or whatever. So, so it would even be hard for you to get a loan if you, if you didn't say you, you had some church kind of background. So in Christendom, Sundays, the Sabbath day, was sacred. Stores were closed, and, and people went to church. And, and, and now Sundays are more about Starbucks and soccer games than it is about Sabbath. So you understand, don't you, Christendom is over. There's really no social benefit to being a Christian and going to church anymore in terms of the big society. In fact, in, in some cases, it's almost a detriment, isn't it? You're starting to feel pressure to go, you know, like, I'm not going to tell them I'm a Christian. <laughs> because there, there's starting to be even a certain, not just neutrality, but even hostility towards all things Christian. And so my, my point is this, that my question is this. As we enter into this Christmas season... Can we still believe in Christmas? We like the Christmas story, and it's so cute, and it's so nice, and, you know, we love the Christmas carols and all that. But in this high-tech, super-diverse world we live in where there is so much pressure, can we really believe in Christmas anymore? As Christians, we're supposed to celebrate the story of Christmas. But can we still believe in Christmas. If you're thinking that Christianity does not make sense to a thinking person, then this series is for you. If you have friends or family members who think that an intelligent thinking person simply can't buy into this Christmas story stuff, if you have some friends and family like that, and really who doesn't, then this series is for you. Because between now and Christmas, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story and I want to do my best to you why I still believe in Christmas. Okay? So let's jump in. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I just want to remind you that we today is our last day to sign up for the Honduras trip. We have a mission trip to Honduras every year. We're going again roughly the first week of April. But today is a deadline for you to sign up. So if you're interested, Gina Calzada will be out at the table uh, or talk to me, but you need to do that today. So let, let's look at the original Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 18. Aren't you glad I'm not starting in verse 1 with a all the genealogies? Okay, we'll just jump down to verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. You realize, don't you, that Christmas is about Christ? 
It's amazing how a lot of people don't even know that anymore. But Christmas is about Christ. And, and it's his birthday when we celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. So this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You know, I, I, I like to read a lot of books, and uh, uh, every now and then I like to read a book that's outside of my comfort zone, you know, just something out of, the, you know, the area that I normally am reading in. So I recently got this book. It's called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and it's written by Yuval Noah Harari. He's an Israeli historian, uh, professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he's an atheist. He's, he's, a, he's a, a, a committed atheist, and he would be right along with Richard Dawkins in, in, this, in this video, thinks religion and belief in God is just, just wrong and, and irrational. But I, I'm reading it, and he's a great writer. He's brilliant, and, and, and I actually agree with a lot of the things that he says. For example, he says that, that every human being lives by a story. We think in terms of stories. Rather than facts and data, we, we, we think in terms of, of stories. And he says that in the last 80 years or so, so much of our world has been dominated by three grand stories. Three grand stories that, that claim to explain the past and predict the future. These three stories are the fascist story, the communist story, and the liberal story. He says the fascist story was where you had a dictator like Hitler or Mussolini, and he, he persuaded millions of people to buy into this story. We are the supreme race. We are the best. We are the smartest. We're the greatest, and we are supreme, and we are going to conquer the world. And that was the fascist story. It got crushed in World War II. Then there's the communist story. The communist story says, let's just hold everything in common. Everybody's equal. Every, we're just going to share everything. Nobody owns anything. We just all share. There's no rich. There's no poor. And, and this communist story really caught on. And many people bought into it. And Russia and China and North Korea tried that. But it never quite worked out that way. And it became, you know, it, it, communism has fallen in so many areas of the world. So for the last 20 years or so, the liberal story has dominated the world. The liberal story is all about progress. 
Things are getting better and better all the time. We're so used to technology. It just gets better and better. It's easy for us to translate that and think that our, hey, people are getting better and better and morals are getting better and better. We're just evolving and becoming and progressing. And, you know, this liberal, everything's getting better all the time. And what we need to do is just free people, liberate people, political rights, economic opportunity, education. Then Yuval says, in the last 10 years or so, this liberal story is breaking down. He says, and I quote, humankind is losing faith in the liberal story that dominated global politics in recent decades. Exactly when the merger of biotech and infotech confronts us with the biggest challenges humankind has ever encountered. So the world went from three stories to two stories to one story and now just about to zero stories. Yuval says this is a challenging time to be alive because we have some great challenges, infotech, biotech challenges coming, and we have no story to make sense out of it all. We have no belief system, no doctrine, no no real values and commitments. We don't really have a, a story that can make sense out of this and give us guidance. So People are shooting each other and killing each other in in schools and stores and synagogues and churches. Parents are punching each other out at, at their children's sporting events. Immigration, terrorism, government corruption, gridlock, and no story. No belief system to, to guide us through this all. It's fascinating. So I ask you this morning, what's your story? Everybody has a story. You can't live just by, you know, certain facts and data points or numbers. Everybody has a story that tries to make sense out of life. What's your story? A lot of people, their story is progress. Maybe your story is progress. Hey, things are just getting better and better all the time. Maybe your story is education. We just need to, your hope is in education. You know, as we just educate people and they they get smarter, you know, then the world's going to be a better place. Or maybe it's the atheistic story where, hey, you know, we just need to make people smarter, get them educated. Then they'll realize that religion is false and wrong and all these Biblical stories and, and all, all, all the religious stories are just kind of goofy and wrong. And we can leave that behind. And we're going to be smart. We're going to be intelligent. And we're just going to progress. And things are going what, to... What's your story? You know, there's another story that many people, even I think Christian people, have bought into in recent years. And I call it the cynics story. The cynical story. Where, where you just sit around and you criticize and you gripe and you whine and you complain about how the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. And you're, you're living that cynic story. Gripey, grumpy, depressed. What's your story? Can I tell you why I still believe in the Christmas story? The story of Jesus? Think about this. We, we, we just read it from Matthew chapter 1. We, we tend to sanitize the Christmas story. You know, it's so cute and it's so nice and we have our Christmas trees and we have our decorations and we have our manger, you know, little manger scenes and and we, we kind of just sanitize it and make it seem all so cute and nice. But when you really look at the original true Christmas story, it was stressful. It was hard. It was even violent. You know, Herod killing the babies and all that. We're going to look at that, that next week. So just imagine, try to put yourself into into Joseph and Mary's shoes. 
So here you are, Mary, this young teenage girl, and this angel appears to you and says you're going to get pregnant. Sure enough, you get pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and, and now you're pregnant, and you're starting to show. You finally have to fess up, and you go, hey, Joe, I'm pregnant. And Joe goes, what? You're, you're what? I mean, I mean, what could Joe possibly be thinking? Yeah, right. So, so he's, he doesn't believe her. He's going to divorce her quietly. He had the option of having her stoned to death, but, but he was a righteous man and didn't want to do all that violence. And so he says, you know, I'm just, I'm just out of here. We're, we're going to separate. This done. And so then Joseph has a dream, and the angel tells Joseph, hey, Mary's telling you the truth. This is a God thing. This is a God moment. Can you imagine Joseph waking up the next morning? Wow, I had way too much falafel last night. I mean, come on. I, then imagine the families of Joseph and Mary. You are what? Oh, but you two didn't? Uh, oh, yeah, right. No wonder Joseph was glad to get out of Nazareth and head on down to Bethlehem. No wonder Mary was anxious to go with them. Hey, hey, Joe, I'll come with you. Let's go. Let's, let's get out of here. You know, I've taken that trip from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, by the way, going to be going again to Israel uh, next fall sometime, probably around the first week of November. If you're interested, let me know. I know it's a long way off, but starting to make plans for another Israel trip. So some of you actually have been there with me. And we've taken that trip from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, but we were in a nice air-conditioned bus. And so what? It's 105 degrees out. Who cares? We're in a nice air-conditioned bus. But Joseph and Mary, they walked, rode a donkey. I mean, that's hard, and she's pregnant. And the family's you know, certainly not believing them. It, it's stressful. And you know what? It's also brand new. No one was expecting this. Christmas initiated a whole new thing into the world. I've been reading Andy Stanley's book called Irresistible. And, and honestly, I have to say, I don't agree with everything he says in the book, but, but I do agree with him on, on a lot of the things in the book where he says especially that Christmas, Jesus initiated a brand new movement, a new morality, and a new message. And that's what I want us to reflect on briefly this morning. Christmas initiated a new movement, a new morality, and a new message. First of all, a new movement. When Jesus was born, why was he born? What's Christmas about? The Christmas story is about initiating a brand new movement. It's no longer going to be just about the Jewish people and, and their ethnicity and this ethnic race. It's going to be about the world, multiracial, multicultural, multinational. It's a new movement, and it's called the church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Say that with me. Ekklesia. So now you can say you know a Greek word. Ekklesia. Some say ecclesia, but I prefer ekklesia. And, and it's made up of two Greek words. Ek meaning out or call out of, and, and kaleo meaning to call, to call out of. And it was actually a word used in politics, in, in, in the, the Greek societies, where they would blow a horn or, or have some kind of announcement that would call the people out. They would call them out and they would assemble together to do business for the city, the state, whatever. 
And so the, the word ecclesia, church, means the called out ones that come together to assemble. So you and I are called out by God from all the different walks of life and the jobs and all the other differences we might have. But we are called out and to assemble together and run mission for Jesus together. We're here to do the Lord's business. Amen? That's what the church is. Did you know that? It's sad that in our English language we call these buildings churches. But really, this building, it's just a building. It's not the church. You are the church. You are the church. And, and, and Jesus intended his church to be his people, a new movement. And this was an entirely new thing. No longer would God's people be just the Jewish people. This was no longer an ethnic thing. This was multicultural, multinational, global thing. No longer would God dwell in a temple in Jerusalem. You and I are temples of the living God. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a temple of the living God. Now that should do something for your self-esteem, don't you think? You are a, you are a temple of the living God which means God is mobile. He's not just there in Jerusalem anymore. He is mobile, and he is all over the world, and he's on the move. This was brand new, even for the, those original apostles, Peter and James and John. Remember in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, Guys, what's the word on the street? Who do people say I am? And they said, Well, some say you're this or that, one of the prophets. And some even say you're John the Baptist who was recently killed and, and, and come back to life. And he says, Guys, who do you say I am? And Peter, the leader of the band, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, right on, Peter. He says in Matthew 16, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will build my ecclesia. I tell you, this, this, should be, this should be your favorite prophecy. You know why? Because Jesus is prophesying, predicting you here. Jesus said, I will build my church. And at that point in time, it was just a handful of ragtag followers. And for Jesus to say, I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones, I'm starting a new movement. And, and it's incredible. In fact, I read books from, from scholars and historians who are still to this day trying to explain how did this little Christmas story with, with a few Christ followers, how did it just multiply exponentially so fast around the Roman Empire and around the world to have such impact, such power, such influence that it has today? It's incredible. It's incredible. See, Christmas reminds us that you and I are a movement. Jesus calls us to impact and change this world. He initiated a new movement, something entirely new. So not only did Christmas initiate a new movement, but secondly, it introduced a new morality, a new morality, a new way of looking at morality. We'll, we're going to touch more on this next Sunday, but, but I agree with Andy Stanley when he says that Jesus introduced a new ethic, a new ethic, a new, a new morality. Jesus himself, he says it in, in several places. But for example, in John 13, Jesus says, A new command 
We're talking about what Christmas has introduced, how it's new. It's new. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. See, that's the standard. As I have loved you. What a high bar, huh? As I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you think most people know that we're disciples of Jesus because of our love for one another today? Wow. I think we got a ways to go in that department. But look at this. A new command I give you. What did Jesus mean? The disciples need another command? See, these were good Jewish boys. And they knew their, their Old Testament, the, the Jewish scriptures. And scholars had long ago said, you know, we studied this so thoroughly. We've counted up all the commandments. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And then they even had a lot more on top of that to explain the commandments and how, how to apply the commandments. And, and, and so what did Jesus mean when he said, a new commandment I'm giving you? Like, did they need now 614? Really? What's he saying? You see, sometimes people will say to me, because, you know, I'm a pastor, and people try to, you know, wonder what I think about this or that. And so they'll say, Greg, is, is, is blank a sin? Is it okay for a Christian to... What does the Bible say about... And, and I get the feeling sometimes when they're asking me this, that... that what they're really saying is, you know, I don't want to offend God. You know, I want to go to heaven when I die and all that. Time. I, I don't want to offend God, but I also want to enjoy myself. So where's the line? And how close to the line can I snuggle up? I, I, without offending God, you know, want to keep, keep the big guy happy, but, but where's the line? Because after all, I do want to enjoy myself. And that whole way of thinking is just, it, it frames the whole morality thing wrong because that's a law mentality. That's a line mentality. That's a legalism mentality. What's the law on this? What's the rule? How much can I get away with? How close to the line can I get? And so Jesus comes along and says, guys, new, new framework here, new paradigm. Here's a new command. It's new. It's a new way of looking at things. Love one another. So simply ask yourself, what does love require of me? In this situation, what does love require? If I'm really going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself, if I'm really going to love and honor and respect God and others, what does love require of me? See, it's not so much about the, the lines and the laws and the rules anymore. It's about love and honor and respect. We'll, we'll talk more about this, this next Sunday, but, but understand that Christmas unleashed a movement. And I believe one of the best explanations of why this movement spread exponentially across the Roman Empire in those early days under such persecution in the midst of such diversity and all these contrary gods and all these contrary stories, one big reason was they had a new morality. You and I don't, we take for granted how, how central love is in the Christian faith because that was kind of a new idea. You know, until the Christian faith came along, it was basically like, I take care of me and my family and, 
I don't really have to love you or care for you. You know, the, the Romans, they, they weren't big into loving each other. They, they were just, you know, I, I'm just trying to survive. And so along came these Christians with this new morality, this new ethic, this new command. I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. And, and they showed such tremendous love to women and to slaves and to children. And people were attracted. They, they found this new movement almost irresistible. Wouldn't it be great to return to that kind of dynamic in our society today? So Christmas initiated a new movement. It introduced a new morality. Thirdly, it unleashed a new message. It was a new message. You say, Greg, what was this new message? Well, think of the Lord's Supper. You notice the table down front here. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And what story does communion tell? What story does the Lord's Supper give us? Think about it. We're told in Luke chapter 22. So they prepared the Passover. Picture Jesus and his apostles gathered around in this upper room. And they're celebrating the Jewish Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, this is my body? This is my blood? A new covenant? Do this in remembrance of me? You and I as Gentiles, not Jewish people with that whole heritage, we, we cannot appreciate how offended those first Jewish people must have been. For Jesus to take their sacred Passover. Because they, they, they would say, Jesus, the Passover is about Moses. It's about what God did through Moses and how he brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, to the promised land. Who are you to take that Passover meal, to take that story and make it all about you? This is my body. This is my blood. I'm making a new covenant. Do this and remember, who do you think you are? They would have been totally offended. It would be a bit, just a, a little bit like me saying something like, you know what, Clarkson Community Church, this year, instead of celebrating Jesus and his birth and his story this Christmas, we're going to celebrate mine. We're going to celebrate Greg Henneman. Okay, all in favor? I, I, I see one hand. Oh, I love you down here, man. I got one. Okay, proves my point, doesn't it? So, so we can laugh, right? Because you know I'm obviously joking. But, but if I, but, but if I kept this going, and and you thought, is he serious? Is he really serious about we're not going to celebrate you? We're going to celebrate him? I mean, I think you guys would just you kind of slip out the back, never to come back, right? And, and if you happen to be on the advisory council, you would be calling an urgent, immediate. Council meeting saying, what are we going to do with Greg? Fire him? Get him counseling? What, what, what are you going to do? See, but th this is what it was for Jesus to take this Passover meal. And he was, he was creating a new story. And, and, and it was wild and it was new. Jesus was unleashing a new message 
on the world. Remember, he claimed to fulfill the old covenant and all that through Moses and all that God did back in the old Testament. He came to fulfill it, move it on, and create a new story that was way beyond ancient Israel, but now would be multiracial, multicultural, multinational, be global, and it has impacted the world. What is that message? What is that story? Listen, the story, the message of the Christian faith is not, well, just roll up your sleeves and try a little harder and be a good person. That's not the message. The message is not just perform a little better so that God likes you. No, no, no. The message is about, it's a declaration of what God has performed, what he's already done for you in Christ. What has he done? God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Christmas. He was born. He lived his life. He gave us his teachings. He revealed more of God to us than the Old Testament ever did. And he died for our sins. Remember the angel told Joseph, I want you to name him Jesus because Jesus means salvation because he's going to save his people from their sins. The good news, the good story of the Christian faith is what God is, has done for you in Jesus. He died and rose again for you so that you can be forgiven and freed, so that you can start writing a new story. Whatever your past story has been, good, bad, indifferent, probably a lot of sin in it, and, and it can be forgiven and washed away, and you can begin writing a new story because of Jesus, what God has done for you in Christ. It's a beautiful story. It's a true story. It's a powerful story. And so what do you do? The Bible calls it faith. You, you respond with faith. You say, yes, Lord, I believe the story. Forgive me, cleanse me, come into me, guide me. Let's write a new story. I ask you, have you done that? Have you responded in faith? Are you writing that new story with Jesus? Would you bow your heads with me?